This is Space Time Series 26, Episode 100, for broadcast on the 21st of August, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, the colours of one of the most distant stars ever detected. Physicists achieve sustained nuclear fusion for a second time. And the race to the moon, with both Russia and India undertaking separate lunar missions. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have used the enormous power of the Webb Space Telescope to study Arendelle, one of the most distant stars ever detected. The new near-infrared observations follow on from earlier research by the Hubble Space Telescope. Arendelle is located some 12.8 billion light-years away, meaning it was created within the first billion years of the universe's existence. Webb's near-infrared camera instrument reveals the star to be a massive B-type blue star, more than twice as hot as our sun and more than a million times more luminous. Arendelle is located in the Sunrise Arc galaxy and it's only detectable from Earth thanks to the gravitational lensing effect of a massive foreground galaxy cluster known as WHL 0137-08. This galaxy cluster located between Earth and Arendelle is so massive that it quite literally warps the fabric of space-time itself, producing a magnifying effect by bending the light from the distant star and allowing the astronomers to use the cluster as a giant magnifying glass. While other features in the sunrise arc appear multiple times due to the gravitational lensing effect, Arendelle only appears as a single point of light, even in Webb's high-resolution infrared imaging. The previous record holder for the most distant star detected by Hubble was observed at around 4 billion years after the Big Bang. However, another research team using Webb recently identified a gravitationally lensed red giant star at 3 billion years after the Big Bang. Stars as massive as Arendelle often have companions. Astronomers didn't expect Webb to reveal any companion stars of Arendelle since they would have been so close together and indistinguishable on the sky. However, based solely on Arendelle's spectroscopic measurements, astronomers think they may well have seen hints of a cooler, redder companion star. The light has been stretched by the expansion of the universe to wavelengths longer than what Hubble's instruments can detect, and so they're only detectable by Webb. Webb's near-infrared camera also shows other notable details in the Sunrise Arc, which right now is the most highly magnified galaxy yet detected in the universe's first billion years. Features include both young star-forming regions and older, more established star clusters, some as small as 10 light-years across. On either side of, well, I guess you'd call it the wrinkle of maximum magnification, which runs right through Arendelle, these features are mirrored by the distortion of the gravitational lens. The region's forming stars appear elongated and are estimated to be less than 5 million years old. Smaller dots on either side of Arendelle are two images of one older, more established star cluster, estimated to be at least 10 million years old. Astronomers have already determined this star cluster is gravitationally bound, and so it likely persists right until the present day. So this shows us what globular clusters in our own Milky Way galaxy may have looked like when they formed more than 12 billion years ago. 
Astronomers are still analysing the reams of data coming from Webb's near-infrared spectrograph, both of the Sunrise Arc Galaxy and Arendelle itself. These will provide more precise composition and distance measurements for the galaxy. Since Hubble's initial discovery of Arendelle, Webb's detected other very distant stars using the same technique, although none quite as far as Arendelle. The discoveries have opened up a new realm of the universe to stellar physics, a new subject matter for scientists studying the early universe where once entire galaxies were the smallest detectable cosmic objects. One of the goals of all this research is to eventually detect one of the very first generations of stars created, the long-sought-after Population 3 stars, which are composed of virtually pure hydrogen and helium, the only ingredients in the universe at the time, which were created directly out of the Big Bang itself 13.8 billion years ago. Their unique composition suggests that these very first stars ever made were very different from all later generations of stars, possibly hundreds of times larger than today's stellar populations and both far hotter and far more luminous, but with only very short lifespans. So for now at least, the hunt goes on. This is space time. Still to come... Physicists achieve sustained nuclear fusion for only the second time ever. And separate Russian and Indian missions race for the moon. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Well, it's taken a while to set up, but scientists with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have successfully repeated their historic nuclear fusion experiment. It's the second time physicists with a National Ignition Facility have fused a pellet of hydrogen using lasers in the process releasing more energy than it took to carry out the fusion experiment. The team first achieved this historic feat back in December last year. Repeating the success of the first event moves researchers further along the path of a reliable, clean, self-sustaining form of limitless, renewable nuclear energy. Unlike existing nuclear fission reactors, which work by splitting uranium atoms to produce energy and also releasing large quantities of radioactivity as a byproduct, nuclear fusion crushes hydrogen atoms together in order to generate energy. In this experiment, scientists fired 192 of the world's most powerful laser beams at a tiny pellet of the hydrogen isotopes deuterium and tritium, creating the sorts of pressures and temperatures usually only found at the core of the sun. The process forces the atoms together to form helium atoms, with some of the matter converted into energy. Now, while a regular hydrogen atom is composed of a nucleus containing a single proton orbited by an electron, deuterium adds a neutron to the proton in the nucleus, and tritium adds two neutrons, the end result being heavier forms of hydrogen. Ignition occurs when the released energy is enough to sustain the fusion process. In the wake of the 2022 success, researchers modified their equipment in follow-up experiments to see if they could improve on that result. The initial data suggested that just over 2 megajoules of energy was delivered by the lasers. And that resulted in the target pellet providing an output of 3.5 megajoules, a fraction greater than the 3.15 megajoules generated in the December ignition. 
However, it's important to remember that these are still single small-scale events. A full-size nuclear fusion plant based on this technology would require lasers up to 100 times more powerful, pulsing several times a second. Still, once we get there, the rewards will be enormous. A single kilogram of hydrogen fusion material, and remember that can be harvested from seawater, will provide as much energy as 10 million kilograms of fossil fuel. Dr. Martin Adams is the National Nuclear Security Administration's Deputy Administrator for Defence Programs. A team at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, National Ignition Facility, made the following happen. There's a tiny cylinder here. Inside that was a a small spherical capsule about half the diameter of a BB. 192 laser beams entered from the two ends of the cylinder and struck the inner wall. They didn't strike the capsule, they struck the inner wall of this cylinder and deposited energy. And that happened in less time than it takes light to move 10 feet. So it's kind of fast. X-rays from the wall impinged on the spherical capsule. Fusion fuel in the capsule got squeezed. Fusion reactions started. This had all happened before, a hundred times before. But for the first time, they designed this experiment so that the fusion fuel stayed hot enough, dense enough, and round enough for long enough that it ignited, and it produced more energies than the lasers had deposited. About two megajoules in, about three megajoules out, a gain of 1.5. The energy production took less time than it takes light to travel one inch. Kind of fast. So this is pretty cool. Um, I have a special message to listeners who want to work on exciting, challenging, and important problems. We're hiring. (laughs) So fusion, fusion is an essential process in modern nuclear weapons. And fusion also has the potential for abundant, clean energy. As you have heard, and we'll hear more, the breakthrough at NIF does have ramifications for clean energy. More immediately, this achievement will advance our national security in at least three ways. First, it will lead to laboratory experiments that help NNSA defense programs continue to maintain confidence in our deterrent without nuclear explosive testing. Second, it underpins the credibility of our deterrent by demonstrating world-leading expertise in weapons-relevant technologies. That is, we know what we're doing. Third, continuing to assure our allies that we know what we're doing and continuing to avoid testing will advance our non-proliferation goals, also increasing our national security. The achievement we celebrate today illustrates that big, important accomplishments often take longer and require more effort than originally thought, and that these accomplishments are often more than worth that time and effort that they took. That's Dr. Martin Adams, the National Nuclear Security Administration's Deputy Administrator for Defense Programs. And this is Space Time. Still to come, Russian and Indian missions race for the moon, and later in the science report, researchers find a really good reason why not to smile or cry at a crocodile. All that and more still to come on Space Time. 
The first Russian moon mission in nearly 50 years has successfully entered lunar orbit and will deploy its lander later today. The Lunar 25 spacecraft launched last week aboard a Soyuz 21B rocket from the Vostochny Cosmodrome in Russia's Far East. The spacecraft entered a 100-kilometre-high lunar orbit just as India's Chandrayaan-3 Vikram lander successfully undocked from its propulsion module in lunar orbit and began its slow week-long descent down towards the lunar south pole. The Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos is desperately trying to relive the glory days of the former Soviet Union's pioneering space program. However, the launch comes at a time when the Russian ruble is crashing in the wake of ongoing Western sanctions brought about by Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Alienated from Western nations by Moscow's war, Roscosmos says it wants to show the world that Russia is still a state capable of delivering a payload to the moon in the process ensuring the Kremlin's guaranteed access to the lunar surface. Of course, the last Russian mission to the moon was in 1976 under the brutal communist dictatorship of the Soviet Union, which collapsed in 1991. The Lunar 25 mission is deploying its 800-kilogram lander down to the moon's surface today. Just like India's Chandrayaan-3 mission, the Lunar 25 was initially planned to carry a small lunar rover. But that idea was forced to be abandoned in order to reduce weight as the mission could no longer use advanced lightweight Western electronics, having instead to rely on much heavier domestically made components. You see, the European Space Agency was working with Roscosmos on the Lunar 25 as well as Lunar 26 and 27 missions, but it withdrew in line with EU policy following Moscow's attacks on Ukraine. Still, Roscosmos says the Lunar 25 will practice soft landing techniques near the lunar south pole, take an analysis of soil samples and conduct other scientific research. The mission also comes as Russian President Vladimir Putin looks to strengthen cooperation in space with China, Moscow's biggest ally. Meanwhile, ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, says the lander module of the Chandrayaan-3 or Mooncraft-3 in Sanskrit has successfully separated from its propulsion module six days ahead of its planned landing on the lunar surface. Once on the ground, the Vikram, which means valor in Sanskrit, lander module will deploy its Pagram or Wisdom rover, which will explore the surrounding terrain for half a lunar day, the equivalent of about 14 Earth days. Meanwhile, Isro says the propulsion module will continue its journey over the coming months and years, undertaking spectroscopic studies of the Earth's atmosphere and measuring variations in light polarization reflected from the planet's clouds. Mission managers say this will provide useful comparison data for future observations of Earth-like exoplanets in order to help determine their habitability. This is Space Time. Time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. Scientists say genetically modified pig's kidneys, which have been transplanted into a brain-dead human patient, appear to be functioning normally. A report in the Journal of the American Medical Association says kidney function appears to have been restored in the 50-year-old male recipient. 
The family of the brain-dead man who had kidney disease granted permission for researchers to implant the kidneys, which would be genetically modified to prevent rejection by the man's immune system. The transplanted kidneys quickly made urine, and importantly, they also improved creatinine clearance, which is an important measure of kidney function. Xenotransplantation has historically largely failed, mostly due to the hyperacute rejection following surgery, even with the use of immunosuppressive drugs used to control the process. The key advance here was the genetic removal of four key pig genes that had previously proven to be a barrier to successful cross-species transplantation and the insertion of six human genes that prevented coagulation and also sort of humanised the pig kidney to look more human-like. The authors say while this is still just a single case, it shows that this process could be a potential solution to an organ shortage crisis responsible for thousands of preventable deaths each year. Scientists are warning that the increasing number of extreme bushfire events around the world, as currently seen in Canada, Hawaii and Greece, and previously during the Australian Black Summer of 2019-2020, could exasperate climate change and further disrupt Earth's systems, leading to devastating impacts across the globe. A report in the journal Science by researchers from the University of New South Wales and the University of Tasmania have highlighted some of the global impacts of the black summer bushfires and detailed some of the lessons learned. The authors say the world is experiencing larger and more destructive wildfires. The area burned by the black summer bushfires was 800% larger than the average area burnt by fires between 1988 and 2001 and the fires released the equivalent of 80% of Australia's typical annual greenhouse gas emissions. Scientists say the fire thunderstorms, which were prevalent across the 2019-2020 fire season, have the potential to significantly disrupt Earth systems, such as climate. During Black Summer, witnesses saw some 44 fire thunderstorms, technically known as pyrocumulus events, where extreme fire alters the surrounding atmosphere. While these enormous fires had devastating immediate impacts, burning out over 186,000 square kilometres of forest, killing more than 3 billion terrestrial vertebrate animals, causing many species to become extinct, destroying almost 6,000 buildings and killing dozens of people, they also had a significant effect on weather and atmospheric systems that influence global climate. The unprecedented amount of smoke and greenhouse gases released by these fires led to such immense stratospheric pollution that it damaged the ozone layer, caused a drop in sea surface temperatures and produced algal blooms in the Southern Ocean that were larger than the size of Australia. The authors say while these impacts may have been less obvious than the immediate destruction they caused, they pose a very serious threat to the ultimate health of ecosystems across the planet. Well, it seems not only should you not smile, but you should also never cry at a crocodile. A new study has found that crocodiles might be better tuned to humans when it comes to recognising the cries of babies in distress. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, used sound recordings to determine that Nile River crocodiles are attracted to the cries from infant bonobos, chimpanzees and humans. They found that crocodiles use specific aspects of the sounds to determine what level of distress their potential prey is in, and they believe that the crocodiles may have become more attuned to babies' distress than we are.
Whether it's vaccine fatigue or a perceived drop-off in confidence, medical authorities have noticed a drop-off in children's vaccination rates. Now, it's not dropping off a lot, but still any move away from herd immunity levels is a concern. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says childhood immunisation remains an important tool in the fight against COVID-19. During the pandemic, and actually before the pandemic, there's a lot of moves to actually increase childhood vaccinations, the vaccinations that most kids will have, and those efforts were paying off in a big way. They Basically, you want to reach 95% of your target audience to try and ensure you've got some sort of herd immunity. There will always be a couple of percentage of people who are anti and who refuse to have it, and there's another percentage or a couple of people who are immuno suppressed and can't have vaccinations because they do have side effects and therefore the rest of us who are having vaccinations will help to protect them and when the pandemic came along people often almost like you saw an overdose of vaccinations there were so many vaccinations that were required apart from the ones you normally have or kids normally have anyway suddenly had all these extra ones and the suggestion is that people got tired of being vaccinated apart from the fact there's a huge amount of misinformation being spread around COVID and COVID vaccines that people are also just exhausted of the whole sort of vaccination process and that exhaustion might apply to the other normal childhood vaccinations that kids need to have. So the suggestion is that there's a drop-off in that kids' vaccination. At one stage in some places in Australia they had reached that 95%, which is brilliant. Mm. But it's dropping down a bit now. It's not dropping a huge amount. You can get over-alarmed by this. It's dropping down in the worst places it's dropping down to about 90% rather than 95 That's still actually pretty good by what standards. Yeah, it is really pretty good. It's, it's considering that in some of these places they were down to 60% at one stage and the worst part of the place in Australia is in what we call the north coast of New South Wales, which is a real hippie area and a lot of anti-vaxxers. And that was the worst case. And that still is that area for the biggest drop-off in childhood vaccination. But even there, it's not a huge drop-off. You know, I'm sort of the vaccination rate around that area is now 90%, which is not too bad. Really, I mean, you can get alarmed about this, that the, the vaccination is dropping off, but not by a lot. And so we need to build it up again still. And perhaps when we've sort of gotten over the, the boredom of being vaccinated under the pandemic, we can return to normal business that they'll pick up again later on. Of course, one of the big problems has been that there have been instances, especially with COVID-19 vaccinations, where we've been promised a lot and it hasn't delivered. And that's not being anti-vax. That's simply stating that Pfizer, for example, told us that the vaccinations will not only stop you catching COVID, but will also stop you transmitting it to other people. We now know the second half of that statement was untrue still untrue. There's a lot of cases of overselling, overhyping, yeah. and that's, yeah, that's, that's the what problem. businesses do. That's yeah. the problem. And therefore, and there's also the but case it wasn't that I was just businesses; it was also the government pushing that line. Yeah, well, well, they were getting their information from businesses, you know, the suppliers of the vaccine. But the vaccines worked. By and large, they worked. And I was talking to an epidemiologist just last night, as it happened, about this very thing. And part of the problem, especially with COVID, was that uh, it mutates so quickly and so readily and so regularly that once you're vaccinated against one stream of it, there's there's a different stream. And whether the previous vaccine works against that or not is a different issue. But therefore, your people are being told, you vaccinate, oh, you've got to vaccinate again and again and again to fight off the coronavirus. fifth booster, so yes, I attest to that. Good for you, I know. But yeah, that's the issue, is is that it's still there, it's still around, and it mutates rapidly. But the more people, the more you kill off the virus by being vaccinated, the better it is. That's Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. 
Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 